CQA Membership Podcast. My name is Dr. Kerr Castle and I'll be your host for this latest episode in which we'll be talking about the factors that impact student engagement. Specifically, we are going to be focusing on how student experiences and engagement are evolving across post-pandemic UK higher education, reflecting on the recently published work of a QAA-funded collaborative enhancement project led by Coventry University. But before we get started, I'd like to hand over to our guest contributors and invite them to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their perspectives on this conversation. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. George Helene. I'm the Associate uh, Dean looking after student experience at Coventry University in the Faculty of Business and Law. Uh, My perspective on this conversation is that the pandemic has been such a transformative period for our student experience that it really required quite a lot of work to be done in identifying how students' expectations have changed. And this is what we've done with our project. Hello, thank you very much, Kerr, for the invite this morning. My name is Professor Eleanor Davis, and I'm the Associate Dean for Teaching and Learning at Huddersfield Business School. My perspective is that I think there can't be an institution that says that the pandemic wasn't a challenge, but actually I think it's emerging out of that pandemic and all the experience that we had from it that is actually the greater challenge because we're really in unknown territory now. We don't really quite know what to do. Um, as a sector uh, and we've got a lot to learn but it's hard to integrate that learning into how we move forward. Hello everybody I'm Dr Peter Wollstonecroft from Liverpool Business School part of Liverpool John Moores University and for me the pandemic accelerated a lot of the trends that we've been seeing before the pandemic hit Um, and possibly the key part is the redefining of what we mean by community within education and I think universities have a lot of work to do to redefine community and to make sure that uh, they're supporting their students um, adequately and in the correct manner. That's brilliant. Thank you all. And thanks for for joining me. I think in lots of ways, you've already started to answer what my first question was around around different kind of perspectives on student engagement and and what kind of led you to the project. I guess the one thing that uh, I am quite interested in is, you know, what what was that landscape like within your own institutions? And when we're thinking about pandemic and thinking about emerging from that, you know, what what did that look like on the ground? Um, so I don't know, George, if you maybe want to, to reflect a little bit on that first. Thank you, Kat. Um The reality is that as we are a widening participation university, we have um, a, a very wide range of students that, that we have welcomed to, to our institution for, for many years now. In the, in, in the midst of the pandemic, we actually observe um, students changing the way they learn not necessarily as a result of the you know of the way we we were delivering our sessions obviously online but when we were allowed to come back on campus a lot of the students didn't really want to come back on campus they they were really enjoying the work they were studying you know the way they were studying from home we have a lot of commuter students we have uh, obviously a lot of international students we we welcome students from from dozens and dozens of of countries um but when we when we were putting together this uh, the the bid for the project, um, we wanted to make sure that through the project we identified how students felt about everything we were doing and about 
how they wanted to learn um, going forward. And I think the big unknown for us was was this, you know, massive question mark we had over, well, what do students actually expect from us? Yes, we can see they are, they enjoy their online teaching and learning, they enjoy their online assessments, et cetera, et cetera, the changes that we've implemented. But we don't know if this is widely spread or it's just very localized. Um, so for us, this was a big question. And thankfully, we managed to find a, a bit of evidence, but obviously come up with a lot more questions uh, after the project. All the best projects ask more questions. That's a good thing. Um, I mean, for, for Eleanor and for Peter, was was it similar? Did you, you feel the same sort of way coming to the project? So that it was that same sense of um I, I mean I liked what you were saying before Peter about the kind of community thing so was was part of it about actually communities quite fragile and, and and having a sense of well how do you know where do we sit within that how do students interact with us within that space I think you're absolutely right and it's it's this redefinition of uh, of community um, across the sector the um, evidence is that attendance is significantly down in in a lot of cases over 20 percent fewer students are attending face-to-face than they did pre-pandemic and there is a very lazy assumption that you make that actually they're digital natives they're digitally uh, literate so we just move everything online but the problem with that assumption is, well, threefold. First of all, there is a significant difference between digital literacy and digital competency. It's the idea that uh, students might well be very good at the technical side, but actually to pass your degree and to engage with your studies, you need far more than the ability to um, get that digital uh, literacy going. Secondly, we shouldn't forget about digital poverty um, and the fact that not all students actually have access to um, to learning online. Um, and, and thirdly, and in many ways, most importantly, uh, simply replacing a, a face-to-face community of a digital community puts put so many other problems in, in, into, the, into the mix. We've seen from the Advanced HE's uh, survey that there is significant number of students experiencing mental health um, issues, uh, feeling unsupported. And I think from a university perspective, there was this assumption that what we can do is we can come out of the pandemic and we've got this digital community, so everything's okay. And I think what the QAA uh, project showed is that that is a very simplistic way of viewing the sector as a whole. Well, I think when we emerged from the the pandemic, we really weren't very sure what we were going into. I did observe when we were thinking about the project that actually the pandemic didn't just finish there was quite a period of stop start as we thought we were going back on campus or not going back on campus. So it wasn't really a clear end. And um, what we found when we expected students to want to come back on campus, and indeed they did, they were fed up in our experience of that studying online. But much like the other contributors have suggested, actually, when faced with that opportunity, it didn't come back in the same form. What was students came back to was not what we'd experienced beforehand. And I think one of the things from my observation, and certainly that came out through the focus groups which I ran, was that the home of where learning sat had shifted. Before the pandemic, we used to have these virtual learning environments that supported lectures and seminars. It supported the online delivery. But actually, the centre of gravity of that learning, the home of that learning had shifted to the online environment. So face-to-face delivery just became part of that mix. 
But students had much bigger expectations of what that mix looked like, which included all the other activities that they'd experienced online during the camp during the pandemic. So I think the whole um, set of expectations around students has really shifted. And I think it's a challenge to us for lots of reasons. For example, some of the ones which Peter have mentioned about digital literacy, for us actually to be able to deliver that in a way that really meets their current expectations. Uh, yeah, and I think that that kind of concept of home that you're talking about is really interesting. I, I'm often kind of drawn to that distinction between a between a space and a place in terms of you know place feeling known and familiar and supportive and you know something that you're attached to, I guess. And it's like, well, how do you recreate that in the digital space? How do you continue that as you're saying when you're then straddling kind of hybrid environments? So it's it's really interesting to think about that notion of of home there. And I think one of the things that is incumbent on us as providers then is to really think about how we design that space, that online space, and that there's, there's parity between their experience in one module, say, compared with another module. Um, and one of the things that came out of the focus groups for me was our students were experiencing quite big differences on how they could navigate that. They were very clear about the modules, which were well designed, and they felt they could get all the information in an acceptable manner, and some other modules which had perhaps reverted back to the repository of information that they had experienced beforehand. Yeah, I think I think Eleanor's absolutely right about this. And there's also the we mustn't make the assumption that we know what student want or students want as well. And I think it's it's the importance of talking to uh, to them. It cannot be underestimated. We cannot just simply say this generation wants this. Apart from anything else, this generation is incredibly multifaceted. Um, so there's lots of examples of maybe using things that um, look good in, on the surface. So, for example, you know WhatsApp communities. But in actual fact, students often see that as their own personal space rather than a uh, academic space. So you know we have to be aware. Um, you know I'm clearly from a very different generation to the majority of the students um, that actually simply replicating things that we think they use is not the way to go at all yeah there was a, i know that the the made digital report that we completed kind of you know fed into to some of your thinking when when george and i in particular were, were chatting previously but there was always a line that stuck with me from that about what was needed was was reimagination and not just translation and it's exactly that, isn't it? It's, yeah, you can't just replicate or, or kind of repackage in a way that you think students might want. But, you know, you need the kind of research that you were doing that was really trying to make sense of, you know, what, what is it that they hope to achieve from this? And, that, that, you know, what should those interactions look like? Um, so, no, that's that's really helpful. I think we, we started to talk about the project in a few different ways. So I guess what would be useful at this point is really to to ask you to to outline then the work that was undertaken and, and, and start to touch on some of those headline findings. So I don't know, George, if you may want to, to lead with that. So the project consisted of um, two data collection points, if you like. On one hand, we had a survey, um, which we ran uh, roughly between June and September 2022. Um, we had quite a lot of questions on the survey and uh, we disseminated it to around 9,000 students from the 10 universities that were involved in the project. Um, thankfully, as, as, as we all know, the completion rate is not always the best, but we had 
around 700 students, so, so more precisely 658 students who completed our survey. We had a very good split between the universities. Uh, everything was completely randomly. Um, and, and that uh, the work that we did there, and, and Peter did an amazing job in, in managing Qualtrics for us and, and helping us with the investigation because we took those responses from the survey and we made sure that we went a bit deeper during the focus groups. So the second part of the data collection was a, a focus group that we ran. So we ran nine focus groups with roughly around 50 to 55 students uh, who actually engage with those focus groups. Um, so yeah, 10 universities, uh, 658 surveys completed, uh, 50 or so students in focus groups, obviously all recorded. And um, I think we did a, a very good job at, at putting all those findings together in, in the guidelines in, in the report. In terms of the findings, um, we had quite a lot of them, but uh, just uh, just a few of them. Obviously, we could see um, from both data collection points that the pandemic has, has quite irreversibly changed student expectations. Um, it was very clear um that students now expect something rather different from us and, and actually what was very good was that a lot of our students um involved both in the survey and um and the focus groups had the experience both pre-pandemic and during the pandemic so we didn't ask those questions just to students who experienced the pandemic and and that that was extremely useful for us we found out that Commuter students have um, some unique needs that universities might might have to um, obviously change their approaches with teaching and learning with the flexibility of the timetabling and so on to make sure that we meet those needs of the commuter students. Um, student sense of belonging has changed. L like, like Peter said, those uh, community building processes, um, uh, obviously we, we, we need to considerably change them to make sure that we continue giving students a, a very strong sense of belonging. Um, what was very interesting, um, and at the peak of the pandemic, I know a lot of universities and academics were really struggling with this, but we found very clear evidence that students were really appreciative of everything we did during the pandemic. And I think that was extremely reassuring, especially for people who who were involved in the focus groups to hear that feedback was was very good. And, and I think it, it really helped a lot of a lot of colleagues. Um, and two more findings which were extremely interesting. Students did not find it very important to be engaging in, in extracurricular activities, um, which again was um, I don't I don't think took us by surprise, but I don't think we expected so many students to say, well, you know, yeah, extracurricular activities are very good, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not really that, um, that keen on engaging with them. Um, and last but not least, and probably just as important, um, students felt isolated during the pandemic. Um, I, it comes back to, to that community that Peter was mentioning, but it, it was a very important finding for us. No, that's really useful, George. And I think, you know, like you're saying, there's 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 elements of the findings that, you know, I, you could perhaps have guessed. And I was going to say that, but, you know, were they different from what you'd anticipated? But I guess from from my side or from, you know, the kind of standout 
from my perspective is the the volume like you're saying that that the kind of scale of that sense of isolation the the, the implications for the commuter students is you know there's so many different facets and i guess that's what's great about the project that you're able to unpack the breadth of that experience as opposed to you know having some assumptions but not necessarily having the evidence to them up so it's great that you've been able to to do that i mean for for eleanor and for peter and i might go in that order if we can were the headline findings similar to what you'd anticipated at the outset of the project or were there surprises in there? I think, as you suggest, there are no enormous surprises in terms of content. Uh, we knew students were isolated. We knew students want different things. Um, I think for me, the challenge arises and what these findings suggest is that actually we've got a very, very diverse student body and one size as a solution is not going to fit all. And I think we're getting a fragmentation of what students want from that experience. And that certainly came out in the focus groups and the survey results. Different students want different things and engagement and satisfactory engagement means different things to different students. And that doesn't make it easy for us as providers because institutions are generally not particularly strong at uh, having a very diverse or tailored offer. Uh, so if we take, for example, um, results around timetabling, which came out through the report, and George has already mentioned the commuter students, a timetable that suits, suits one student doesn't necessarily suit another. If you've got a two-hour commute, you um, that places particular constraints. If you live more close by but have a job, then you want a different sort of configuration of the timetable. And I think that's very different. That's very difficult for institutions to provide for. So I don't think the results were surprising as such, but the sheer diversity of student experience and expectation really um, came home, I think, in this study. Uh, yes, yeah. I think one of the things which really struck me was the idea that um, how little that we actually knew about our students. Um, and one of the th fascinating um, results came from some of the earlier students. So in other words, the students studying at level four in their, in their first year. I mean, we, we've already, always known that there is a significant disconnect between compulsory and post-compulsory education. And uh, we've always tailored our uh, inductions on that, uh, on that basis to change students from a maybe a more passive approach and very assessment based that they're used to when completing their assessments uh, at A level or BTEC to uh, maybe a more active and uh, engaged approach at university. But with the pandemic hitting, it, it stopped that process. And so when students came back, they weren't necessarily where they needed to be. So um, a classic example would be that uh, my own university, as, uh, as with all universities, have a very um, a very sophisticated series of support for students, but it is predicated on the idea that the students reach out for that support. It is it is very much the case that the student is viewed as as the key as the key person in looking for that support. Um, now that's something we we always focus on with our students. We tell them we tell them about the importance of, of getting grabbing hold of their learning and making sure that they um, that they they control it. But with the pandemic, they, again, adopted a far more passive approach. They were sitting there at home doing things online. And so when they came back, it was a struggle to get them to engage. And we are seeing, as I mentioned before, the idea that there's record numbers of students struggling with mental health and, and, and well-being issues. And I think 
that's not necessarily about lack of support from the university. It's about the disconnect between that support and the student expectations. Um, and I think one key message from the report is very much that you cannot talk to the students uh, too much. And I, th- I was um, discussing this and, and talking about it before the podcast and thinking about uh, debates that we were having before the pandemic about how we view students as consumers, do we view them as co-creators? And and I think that's, the pandemic has knocked all of us on the head. They are an integral part of the process and we need to, we need to be talking to them constantly because as Eleanor said, there is no such thing as a typical student. They are a heterogeneic group. Um, And so simply coming up with simple answers is, is not the way forward. Yes. Can I, confident there are their confidence around that sense of agency isn't it which is a very tricky thing if you already feel a little out of your depth or, or not sure where you sit so yeah I, I can completely get that i actually wanted to say that obviously we can't do that uh because of the ethics approval and so on we we've actually already deleted all the recordings that we have of the focus groups but those recordings could have been some amazing podcasts for the sector um, I remember in, I mean, I, I listened to all of them and I remember, but the one which I recorded at Coventry, um, we had six students and actually what Peter just said, you know, there's, and, and Eleanor said it as well, um, students have different needs, different expectations. You could hear on the recording that one student would say, oh, it would be really amazing if the lectures could be recorded in, I don't know, 10 minutes chunks. And then another student would say, well, yeah, but I, I disagree with that because if it's 10 minutes, I have to keep going from recording to recording to recording. I'd much rather have one, which is 50 minutes long. And you think this is amazing. This is exactly what I was hoping to get from the focus group. And Absolutely, without any efforts on my side, students were opening up like a book and saying, this is what is going to work for me. And then, you know, five other students in the group would say, well, yeah, we kind of agree with that. But, you know, have you have you thought about this? Um, So really, my take from from the entire project and, and really from listening to students is that universities and maybe i speak here just for modern universities because this is what you know with you know it was 10 modern universities that that actually worked on this project i'm not sure how it how this project would look like if it was um completed by russell group universities for example otherwise um but universities have to become a lot more agile and I know it's it's a cliche, and I know a lot of universities are saying they're doing this and so on, but I don't feel universities are doing enough um, in diversifying their approaches, in diversifying the way they work with students, and really in in learning from students. But what I feel is that Actually, the answer to all of the challenges that we are facing as a as as a sector lie in front of us. There with students. Um, if only we could spend a lot more time listening to students and and drawing those conclusions with regards to how we have to transform our approaches. Um, 
from them. You know, we have all the answers. It's just a matter of having the willingness, um, having obviously the time, and at the same time having, uh, in a way, the power to 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 implement those transformative changes in in our approaches. And if I could add to that, um, I think I absolutely agree with you, George. I think the challenges in the universities is partly about that those mechanisms that we have for listening, but then also the our ability to implement is it, it's difficult for us because we've got systems and structures which don't necessarily align with that. We've got infrastructure, we've got IT systems that make that flexibility to change really quite difficult without very, very substantial investments in the sorts of technology and systems that we operate. So we can listen. Uh, I think part of the challenge is also in the in that implementation. If you take timetabling, for example, I know it's a common problem across the sector. The ability to shift our timetabling, the way we view timetabling, is really uh, quite a big challenge for us. I think. No, I th- I think they're they're all really useful points. Because my my next question was going to be about how we start to respond to those sorts of challenges, and I I, I guess. You know, some of the the learning that you've identified so far is picked up in the good practice examples that also feature in the report. So, are there any uh, any of those that you'd like to draw out at this point, or, or highlight as potential sort of solutions to some of the challenges that we've been talking about? Or are they are they a starting point again? Are they almost like the food for thought of this is one particular approach that seemed to work? Um, but yeah, is is there anything like that that would be useful to to draw out at this point? But I drew attention to the one of the projects that we brought from Huddersfield Business School. I think one of the challenges that arises out of small chunks of learning and different ways of engaging is there's sometimes a um, a concern that actually we're not going to be able to get the depth of knowledge or the sophistication of knowledge or the engagement with the real academic agenda. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Shelley Harrington from Huddersfield Business School, ran a beautiful journal cup project which sat outside, this was during the pandemic, that sat outside of our traditional timetable classes. But for a final year module, she managed to engage a whole raft of final year students in studying uh, specific journal articles and called it Journal Club. And it met weekly and the students read a selected uh, paper in advance and they got together and talked about this in a really engaging way. Uh, which I thought was really lovely practice, which went beyond our traditional means of engagement. And I think there may be scope here for having much greater diversity and much more imagination and innovation in the way we want to address some of the goals that we want, which is ultimately about student learning and their ability to engage with this world of ideas. So um, I was really impressed with Shelley's work. I think, Elna, it's really interesting as well, that example, though, where I guess that's that sort of journal club was also likely at that time responding to that particular need for more contact and more interaction. So there's maybe something in, as we're saying, what are the needs of the student in the moment? So sometimes that is the the kind of communication that we've spoken about so far. Sometimes that's maybe easing back on that. But there's something in, I guess, being alive to their position at that moment in time, which is a, a really interesting thing. And that's and that's agility, isn't it? That's the ability to be agile to the needs of the students at a moment, rather than having things which are set in stone or traditionally it's, it's a responsiveness. 
what the good practice showed is, first of all, the ability of the sector to learn from each other. And I think one of the key outcomes from the project is that there were 10 universities part of it, and there was complete openness in, in terms of sharing and in terms of looking for good practice. And that was that was absolutely, that was, that was great. The, the, the second thing is link, linking in with this is uh, the use of assessment and the use of, sort of quite, quite innovative um, work and innovative uh, pedagogy. And I think one of the things that the project showed us and the pandemic showed us is that although university structures are quite sort of uh, quite difficult to change there are lots of ways of introducing some fantastic stuff um, into universities. I mean, there's one from uh, Liverpool John Moore's about some authentic assessment for local um, coffee shop, which has been transformative, not just for the students, but for the businesses involved. Um, uh, and I've owed us always initial scepticism about how can we get this through the, um, uh, the, the rules and regulations. In actual fact, um, it, it, it's very possible. And when it's done, it's been incredible. Incredibly successful. So that sharing a good practice and that innovation for me is, is a really positive conclusion. I think what's important for me with, um, and I really like you mentioned the, the good practice examples that we included in, in our project. What's very interesting is that we're all doing very innovative things. We are genuinely passionate about transforming our students' experience and our staff's experience as well, I dare say, because you, you could see in there, we we allow, obviously, um, staff to be extremely flexible, to be very creative and so on, which, you know, in, in many industries is not really the case. They have to follow the norms and so on. Um, but unfortunately, um, we can't find one approach that would would fit everyone, you know, under the, the under that student population, if you like. I think Eleanor put it very nicely at the beginning, and we were having this conversation last week and earlier this morning. There is no one size fits all, which is really amazing on one hand, but on the other hand, it's quite scary for the sector because you think, but which way am I going as a sector? If if you're a pro-vice-chancellor looking after the education, for example, or associate dean, dean, academic dean, and so on, you think, what do I really have to do here to meet the expectations of, I dare say, the new generation of students, but they're not really a new generation yet. If, if we call them the post-pandemic students, yes, but generation-wise, they're still Gen Z, if you like. Um, which way do I have to go as, a, as an academic? Dean, for example, or as a dean. And unfortunately, the answer is you have to be extremely agile and you have to diversify as much as possible everything you do, which is related to students. Um, and those good practice examples are a very good start. I feel they're a very good start. I'm obviously subjective, but they are a very good starting point for many universities. And they do offer a, a, a very good range of ideas for them to, to implement. For my, my final question, I was wanting to, to just think about um, you know, some of those headline findings that you'd mentioned. And and again, that sort of question of where we go next. So I know on the one hand, there's saying about the connections that you have as a project team, and and, and I'm sure you know there's there's kind of work that might continue there. But you know, from from your side, where does where do we go next as a sector? And and what kind of things can uh, listeners perhaps pick up on in the short term? So that may well be those good practice guides, but you know, what kind of things can they start to consider in terms of their practice going forward as well? 
Yeah, I think for me, um, the key thing I've taken out of it, um, apart from the the, the pleasure of working uh, with with such a such a great team, is the fact fact that we don't do enough work on transition to HE, and I think that's something to really focus on. Um, The fact that we actually had um, we had a, a, a. a problem with obviously a pandemic hitting gave us rise to the fact that we don't necessarily prepare our students for HE in that sort of effective manner by treating them as individuals. We tend to have a a block induction where they all get treated in the same way. They get shifted from uh, lecture theatre to lecture theatre. And instead, we need to look at them far more as individuals. Now, this is a major challenge, but and it gives rise to all sorts of uh, questions about personal tutoring, about university support um, and about individual learning programs but it's something we've got to get to the heart of because simply treating the students as this homogenous group is not the way to go forward so uh, certainly from, from our um, the John Moore's um, practice, we've looked uh, extensively at our induction and changed it massively on the basis of what we found out from the, from the QAA. We're also working far, cl- far more closely with schools and colleges to ease that transition. I think in the past, what's happened is that uh, they've left school or college in, in June or July, and we expect them to be fully formed in, in September. But in actual fact, by working with them in that last year when they're in Compulsory education, we can do a lot of the work that traditionally we've done in semester one within HE. We have a, a, a piece of work that was produced as part of our own transitions project that was focused on the student value journey. And I think that's interesting in terms of, you know, the kind of thing we're talking about here, but what students are needing at different times. And it reflected, I think it broke it down into six different kind of stages or phases uh, in terms of what students need through their progression through HE. And there is something in being able to tap into that, as you say, that I think is so, so important. Yeah. So I think where next is is uh, an amazing question, really. Where next uh, in light of uh, in light of our findings for the sector? Um, you know, years ago, we used to say we have to have students as partners. Um, and if anything, this this project actually made it even clearer or finally found some evidence that we genuinely have to have students as partners and we, we genuinely have to be together around the same round table and make sure we listen to each other. Um, obviously, um, I mean, being in student experience myself, I I... I very passionately think that we have to listen to students and most of the time we do everything they ask us for because you know this is this is what they their needs are but there are some limitations so I think on both sides we have to understand what would work best for each other and and what would be the limitations I think the relationship we as institutions have with student unions um is is extremely important and I think students in particular and we've we've spoken about um, students and let, let's call the new generation, the post-pandemic generation, coming with a different kind of agency. Um, so not not that many students actually see the value in student unions, but I would still encourage, uh, well, all of them to 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 have that that trust in students' union and to have a consolidated voice to be able to drive transformative change in the sector. Um, 
And then with regards to the sector, I, I usually, I tend to think in, in academia, I tend to think in decades. So I kind of think 2010 to 2020 and 2020 to 2030. But the way I look at, at the current decade of, you know, the higher education sector um, and being a fairly quantitative researcher myself for being focused on on data and being data-driven, I, I do enjoy event studies. And I look at the current decade, if you think 2020 to 2030, there are potential, and in my view, there are three major events that will almost um, irreversibly change the higher education sector. Number one is the pandemic. And we, we, we know exactly what happened in the pandemic. We know how much it transformed us. Number two, we keep calling it artificial intelligence, whether it's artificial intelligence or not, but let's call it artificial intelligence for the sake of the exercise, the impact that artificial intelligence is going to have on everything we do and all the work that students do with regards to their teaching, learning, assessments, etc. So that's the second event that will considerably change the higher education sector. And the third one is us having to welcome Generation Alpha. There's not a lot of conversation on Generation Alpha, but students who are, you know, in in this current decade, we're going to have students from around 20, 27, 28 onwards, we're going to have students who were born holding an iPad in their hand. And that changes almost entirely the approach that we have to have with regards to teaching and learning. An online lecture delivered in 2027 is not going to be impressive at all for students who will be coming to the university at that stage. And Peter said it very nicely. I don't, and, and I, I entirely agree with him, and we had many conversations on this. We are not doing as much as we could do with regards to preparing students to join the university. I'm a school governor, a lot of us are school governors and, and, and we're, we're doing everything we can to help. But I think the relationship between higher education and pre-higher education sectors is broken somewhere. And, and I'm not sure, um, obviously the life, lifelong learning approach, um, that, that will help, but I'm not sure we're doing enough in that area. So that, there's obviously there's quite a lot, but um, I think the next decade will be pretty transformative for the sector. Absolutely. No, I think I think that's really helpful, and it's 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 useful. I mean, the rule of three works for anything. I think it's always a good thing to have three things in mind in a in a decade. Um, but but I think going back to what we said about agility and and that sort of partnership with students, and you know, it seems like all of the elements, as as you said before, are sat right in front of us. So it's about how to really kind of capitalize that on that in a way that's sustainable too, I guess, is probably the other key element that, you know, as we say, there are so many challenges, but from a staff perspective, that can be very immersive and very, you know, perhaps not always the most realistic in terms of what can be addressed, um, you know, at, at pace, um, but equally for the students as well, but what's kind of put onto them. So I guess there's something in finding that balance uh, and that kind of equilibrium that, that works a little bit better. Um, but from my side, thank you for a really great discussion. I really enjoyed that. I think there's a lot to take away and obviously we'll encourage people to, to explore the report. Thanks very much to George, Eleanor and Peter for joining us. 
If you would like to explore the student engagement guidelines they produced as part of their QA funded collaborative enhancement project, the link is available in the episode notes. You can also visit qaa.ac.uk and search student engagement guidelines. You might also like to look at our work around the student value journey referenced earlier in the podcast. Head over to qaa.ac.uk and search supporting student transitions to see our full collection of transitions resources. Thanks again for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation and look forward to sharing more content like this with you soon.